Carl Graham, my friend of over two decades, is an accomplished director, designer, voiceover artist, and all-around creative. He brings a unique energy to his projects that I have had the privilege of witnessing evolve over the time we spent together as children. Carl integrates his Catholic faith into his worldview, which gives his insights a depth that borders on prescience. In today's episode, we talk about how he became a creative, the new and upcoming trends in content creation like NFTs, computer graphics, and virtual reality, as well as the challenges of being a family man while juggling all of the above. I do hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, Carl, welcome to my podcast. Hi, thanks for having me, Rami. Uh, for the benefit of the listeners, do you mind introducing yourself? So I'm Carl Graham. I'm a director, designer, and animator. So I'm also... Uh... <laughs> so my name is Carl Graham. I'm a director, designer, and animator. I also do um, voice acting on the side. So I, I, do, I do a bunch of different things. I think the main thing is the director part, though. So I make uh, commercial videos for brands here. Uh, but I also do a lot of direct-to-client work with um, people abroad. Mm. Yeah, so. Mm. And how long have we known each other, Carl? Um, we've known each other for maybe, oh gosh, I don't know, since we were in <laughs> diapers, right? Yeah, yeah, thereabouts. Diapers? <laughs> I don't know diapers, man. Were you in there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might have been. I might have been. I was one of those troublesome babies, you know, high maintenance babies. Uh, so anyway, let's jump time. right in. Uh, so Carl, you're someone who uh, really uh, took a left turn from the direction that most of us took um, after we finished up high school. You really went in the direction hard into the direction of being a creative. Uh, and so you're really someone who, whenever I think of like these problems, especially with my podcast, I approach you and probably you, you'll probably remember me for asking you a bunch of questions. So, but on this journey, like to be a creative, you've taken on a bunch of roles. So you're a director, you're a voice actor, an animator, a designer, right? Uh, why is it that uh, the creative industry is like that, you think? Um... You mean, why is it that I have to fit in a bunch of of roles at the same time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I don't think um, every creative does... I don't think every creative professional does have to be doing a lot of things at the same time. I think a lot now in the, the content, like in the content-heavy industry, a bunch of people do take on uh, a bunch of different roles. Like, you know... Let's say YouTubers, they aren't just, you know, they aren't just um, filming themselves. They're writing the script. They're they're thinking of the content, and so they have to know a lot of different things. In in my case, I was just, I think I was just always interested in a bunch of different things, and I still am now. Um, I I think I'm generally curious about things that uh, that aren't even part of my industry. I think I. Um, in fact, I think I dabble more than I should, and I, c I could be focusing more. But, um, yeah, I think that's why. I think it's helpful in the, in the creative industry to have, um, to have a bunch of different things because I think the different interests um, support each other. Like, if you've got a hobby in one aspect, it 
it um, reflects on the way. Like I, I know a bunch of, I know of some designers who are also photographers, and the photography discipline improves their design discipline. And you know, I know that my, for example, the voice, um, the voice acting work that I do with some clients let me, lets me know that um, I think there's a certain clarity and punchiness that I, I bring to my work because of because of that practice. Mm. Yeah. So is is it would it be fair to say that uh because you have participated in multiple points in the creative process for the purpose of making something like a film, you understand more to a to a more granular level what the demands of an ideal voice actor would be, right? So maybe they they're not so much uh, separate tasks, but they all build up to something uh, more. At least in 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 your professional life, is that would that be an accurate assessment? I think so. Um, it it also it also helps me. I think it's two things. It, it um, as a director anyway. Uh, it it helps me to be. I think um, considerate of people on different roles. That would be the nice way of of putting it. I think it also allows me to expect more of each person in a team if I'm working with a team. So because, well, I think it, it also depends on where your specific um, expertise lies. And since like I became, a, I, I became a director more through like the post and through the editing route as a designer, like from post-production into doing more directing stuff, as opposed to someone who was maybe shooting more and so that means that I, I'm harder on the editors because I know I know how to do um, most of what they're doing. Like I've done it myself. And so I'll, I'll be asking more from them. But it, it also means I'm, I'm asking more nitty-gritty questions from them and what's the latest thing they're doing. So it, at its best, I'm, I'm chummier with them. At its worst, uh, I'm asking for things that they might find annoying but I know it's technically possible um, because of because of my background in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it, it's it's funny because um, back in this reminds me of back when I was in college. Um, so I was in the judo team at Atreo. I wasn't I wasn't one of the better ones in the the pool. But our coach was a relatively young guy. So shout out to Coach Ali Sulit. And so whatever whatever he would do was when he like when we weren't putting our all into training. Because he was he was not that much older than us. I think he was he he cleared us by like fifteen or twenty years, depending on who you were on the team. So if he didn't mm-hmm. like the level of effort that you were putting in in training, he would step on the mat and he would spar with you, <laughs> <laughs> and he could kick our butts, man. So uh, I think uh, that, that, that uh, your your ability to apply uh, uh, what you know about these various disciplines kind of reminds me of that. So you you can kind of whip your editors into shape maybe a little bit, although you choose to put it more delicately than that. <laughs> no, I I think that's that's a really interesting way to put it because I I think. Um, I think as a director or really just as uh, as as a person I really like when somehow whether through it's a project or a conversation if there's something I can do or participate in bringing out the best version of something that someone has I think that's always been a guiding thing for me so uh, that story of like you know your your coach um eliciting a better response from you by sparring with you, I think that's uh, that's awesome. I, I think that that's always 
um, inspired me. I think the first time I had a taste of something like this, and I think um, in in college I always thought like, oh, um, the director is the guy who sits in the chair and barks orders and doesn't really do anything. And uh, and I found that to be the case. No, um, <laughs> I think um, that that's not the case. I think um, at least in in my case, I've. In in college, I I, w- I had the the good fortune of being able to apply for a creative director role in my publications office, and there would be times where, um, actually, um, my main job would be that there were different illustrators and designers, and there would be work that I'd have to check and give feedback on, and I think when there was work that came in. And I said, oh, this is awesome. Because the designers and the illustrators were really talented, right? I mean, it was it was an art school. so uh, And it was hard to get into that org, that publications office. So the people who were there were already good. And when they'd show me good work, I would get really excited, but also really critical because I'd get excited about trying to push it to be great work. And so when they'd show work and I'd be like, oh, this is so cool. What if we, we, we tried this? What do you think about that? And I was probably more heavy-handed back then. Hopefully, I'm less heavy-handed now in in giving um, ideas. And then when they'd come back with work that was even better, it was such a rush for me. I think it was more, um, maybe just as a ru- just as much of a rush, or more than if I were doing the work all on my own. Like to collaborate with people and then pull out the very best that they can give is is really exciting for me. Mm. Uh, you know, uh, this reminds me a little bit of like the process for learning generally, like usually, like this is the advice that I give to anyone who's like trying to make it in any field. You have to find a mentor who's like willing to be critical with you, who's not like just going to hold your hand because that's like if, if you're looking to do the most with the youth and energy that you have, uh, given the field that you want to pursue, you need someone to kind of swat your hand, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, now you're coming into a level where you uh, know quite a lot. Right, and uh, you talk about uh, the fact that you still experiment and learn, Carl. So, uh, how do you approach the task of learning, considering that you do dip your toes into quite a lot of different things? Hmm. Um, I think, in terms of, I think that's a that's a. <laughs> I I think the the best way that I've been able to learn is through a project. So I do wish I was more studious and I could just like um, maybe just start learning uh, a program or or something just um, through a curriculum. But I think, though it's not that I haven't learned that way, I think just the best way that I've really learned something deeper is by doing a project for it. So there was this one time I needed to, uh, there was a, uh, there, there was a project and um, so normally, as a director, there's um, there's an agency. Um, actually, for most of the time, and I, I do like this setup, is that there's an there's an advertising agency here, who who is looking for a production house or a director, uh, and they approach me, and they already have a script or a storyboard, and it's my job to kind of make it real, and then hopefully make it better, and so. I think in this particular case, the storyboard was to have the person, the guy, shot against chroma, which is like green screen or blue screen. 
and then composite a 2D illustrated background on him. But I was really excited about learning more 3D. And I was like, and I found out that you could do a kind of stylized 3D in After Effects using Cinema 4D. And it wasn't like fancy 3D. It was made to look, it's called Tune, it's called Tune Shaded 3D. So it's like, it looks like 2D, but it, it you know, like it's rendered so it's 2D. So it doesn't have as much shading and, you know, all the rules that would be applied to um, photorealistic 3D. And so I said, okay, let's do it. Um, let's do it in that style, but let's do it like with 3D. And so this this forced me to open up the program and uh, really build <laughs> build like the it was a bus. And I hadn't modeled anything in 3D, and it really like pushed me into doing um, more 3D. So it it forced me to do tutorials online. And yeah, I got really comfortable with the program fast because there was a project I had to do with it. Um, having said that, I did also, um, I do also still subscribe to some newsletters, click links, watch videos. But I think that's that's really more of a, a kind of, you know, feeling feeling the the pulse of the industry and. Uh, and then to know what to learn next, hopefully, and then, but the actual learning itself for me has gone best when it's project based. Mm. Well, it's one of those things like me as a lawyer, like I used to uh, have like aspirations also, like if I could just relate to your example, right? I There are like these, uh, sorry, these are these, there are these big ticket legal items that you can help people with, you know, like these are the sexy ones that you hear on like these legal dramas. Uh, like uh, mergers and acquisitions and stuff, mm -hmm. and uh, mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sexy stuff. I uh, work, I work in mergers and acquisitions. Yeah. Uh, mer <laughs> there, there was that. There was that. The movie with Christian Bale, American Psycho, where he says, mm -hmm. "I work in murders and uh, what? What, you, what is it? Murders and uh, the, the, oh, because he was a mur yeah. murderer." Yeah, yeah, murders and acquisitions. But he, he had a play on words where it sounded like mergers and acquisitions. But anyway, going back to my point, uh, so. Yeah, there are these kinds of you, when you when you pick a particular discipline like being a creative or being a lawyer, for example, there are all these kinds of things you want to do. But it, it's good to be instructed, I guess, by uh, what it is that people approach you with. So personally, like even though there are these highfalutin, uh, really fancy, really um, laudable fields of law that I would like to practice into, if I don't have anyone who's willing to come in and pay me for the for the trouble, right? Mm. That's like a really good indicator uh, for. Yeah. Uh, whether or not I should pursue it. And so I guess this is a nice dovetail into my next question, Carl, right? Uh, how do you decide, like, what, what new disciplines are uh, are worth learning? Because, like, uh, you know, like, there's, like, just, just in video, for example, like, I can imagine, like, VR video was a big thing for a while. Uh, and, like, you know, you, you have to look at that new potential service that you can provide and then decide whether or not it's worth the time to pick up the skill. So how, how do you decide? Maybe in the absence of knowing whether or not it might be benta. Yeah. I think it's like, um, for me anyway, I think there is two... Adjusting my mic. I think for me there's maybe there's there's like two levels I look at a question, um, you know, an idea like that from one is like on the ground what i'd actually need to learn and then there's like the you know um 
from the from the sky kind of vantage point of of what that would look like so i think i do have to learn a bunch of little things to to bring a project along but i don't think um in terms of the from this from the sky or the bigger perspective i think i'm thinking of it more like what excites me and what aligns with my existing strengths so um i don't know if you've heard me go on about it but i'm a huge fan of the strengths finder book and i've gotten most of the people i know to to take it have you have you taken uh, I, I, ha- I have the book i have the code and i haven't i haven't done it yet <laughs> oh man you gotta do it so i mean it's really it's really helped clarify a lot of the the things that i i do it's i, I think it's one of <laughs> i mean way to uh you know preach it but it, it's i think it's one of the books that i think changed my life because i think the one of the um, you know one of the perspectives they take is that you can't you can't change who you are but you can be um you can't be someone you're not but you can be a lot more of who you already are and that means a lot to me because i think um imagine a world where people are expected to do the very best of what they're good at instead of being expected to do something uh that they're not good at so um you know what comes to mind is is any any job like you know have you have you been in a restaurant where the waiter is just so good at his job he's not taking notes you know or she's not taking notes and she rem- remembers your whole order um you know the way he puts the dishes down the way he speaks to the guests it's just it's excellent and he's using soft skills and strengths that he's good at and they happen to align with you know being a, a waiter so um so for anyone who hasn't including you uh do take the test but make sure you read through the book so that it it comes with with the weight that that it could be and then we should we should talk again um whether on a podcast or not we should talk about them because um my i think my strengths also really get excited about strengths finder because i think my top are strategic um maximizer communication individualization and there's one more but um basically once you know what they are and and they sound like regular words but then you have to understand them in, in the context of you know what the book is talking about so one of my top strengths for example is communication and uh and that's why i decided to keep doing uh voice voice work because it felt like i was investing in that part of myself in in learning how to to speak better and learning to receive direction from a voice producer on how to adjust something and while it seemed i mean it's not a whole lot of money um from voice acting but i enjoy the process and it feeds a part of me that is uh inherent strength that i can use for other things so um so once again going back to the question whatever intersects with what i'm already good at in terms of soft skills and things i'm interested in um i think that's what worth invest that's what's worth investing in i'm still okay. i'm still really interested in like web design and advances there but i've learned to kind of let that fire just burn there and then you know marvel at the work who do it for real and at least it gives me a deeper appreciation for other crafts because i know how much goes into it but just because i and i i want to 
say this because I think there's a lot of anxiety that comes, maybe especially from the creative industry, in seeing all the new stuff that are coming out and then wondering which it is, um, which of them I should get into. I know it is for me, like, um, to get more, I mean, that's like a maybe a more abstract answer, but like to give you one that's more practical, right now as we record this, you know, Unreal Engine is like the hotness for real-time rendering. And there's there's two types of rendering, right? There's offline rendering and online rendering. Offline being um, non-real-time, and the faster your video card, the, f the faster the computer can spit out the kind of physically accurate or um, picture. But real-time rendering uses a bunch of cheats and stuff like that to give you the image almost immediately. And that's what game engines use. And the thing is, um, they're kind of converging because online rendering or real-time rendering is getting so good that it's looking more and more like um, offline rendering. And so there's this pressure, at least in my mind, like why am I wasting my time with offline rendering then? If online is going to be it and it's faster, shouldn't I be learning how to use Unreal Engine? Um, and, you know, I've had that in my mind a lot. I've got a bunch of tutorials that I'm supposed to watch. So I still, I still struggle with what exactly to learn and when. But if it intersects with my my interests and it's fun enough and maybe I'll just tell someone hey let's do a project and we'll use Unreal for it and then and then I'll learn everything there is to learn about Unreal. Mm. So I really liked how you put it because um, so what I, I began with I kind of began with the soulless economic justification of learning and then you brought up a really good point which is that uh, you know you have to also look at what jives with you so there there's probably like a lot of options that a potential creative is faced with and he has to choose and so perhaps going with what he might actually be interested in when he doesn't have so much of an inkling what the economic justification would be is probably a good way to go. Now, on yeah. that point, uh, precisely because you mentioned it, uh, what do you think about how the, well, the industry, like, so say, for example, yourself, you're a very, you're a very successful creative. I, I really don't know if I'm being diminutive if I use the word creative over and over again. I feel like there's, there's other synonyms <laughs> some people, I should be deploying. Some people don't like it. Some people, but I think to get the point across, I think it's completely fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. Uh, hopefully some people is not you. Uh, no, uh, yeah, no, I, don't, I don't mind. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, what do you think it says about the industry that, you know, like to be successful, such as yourself, uh, that you have to cons constantly reapproach new disciplines where it might not have been that way even just ten years ago. Um, well, I think actually that that makes me think of it in maybe two two ways. One is that you don't have to be a rock star, and two is that um, well, I'm not sure if they're two separate ideas, but. I'll try and, 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 and just give you my answer and I'll see what it sounds like. But basically, when I was in college, I thought that um, to be, you know, I think it is two, two separate things. So in college, I thought that you'd have to be a design rock star to really make it. Like that was the definition of success. You were someone like um, Sagmeister or, you know, working for Pentagram. And these are all like uh, the graphic design, you know, big guns or you'd have to get featured on you know one of the big sites or publications but one you, you don't have to be a rock star to be successful you can you can also make a living as a creative person i think you can do it now more 
better than you used to be able to. So if you've got, you know, the drive and the hustle. So that's one thing. And the, the second thing is exactly what that looks like, you know. Um, there's, there's, there's the hustle that a lot of people um, have and, some other, and a lot of people also don't have. And it, it's about, I, I've met people who are really into their art, but the way they look at it is very like, yeah, I want to do this, but um, there's no opportunity or something. And I think, I think it takes, um, um, it takes a certain, yeah, it's, it's helpful to take a certain attitude where you're not so precious with your art or not so precious with your creativity, where you're like, how can I bring value to other people? I think it, it, that's been helpful. Um, that's one thing that I appreciate about working in commercials is you you see just how much it's about just making something come out. It's not about, doesn't have to be the most beautiful, um, amazing thing that reflects your inner soul. And that's fine um, for, for like personal projects or, or projects that are really for art. But, you know, I think expanding the definition of creativity beyond just making a pretty picture i think um, is helpful because then you can see that you can solve problems it takes creativity to solve problems and ultimately that's i think what makes creativity valuable is if you use it to solve problems is there a problem then you solve it sometimes it's a pretty picture sometimes it's a clear picture sometimes maybe it's an ugly picture to elicit to elicit a response um so I, I think that you you don't actually have to know um, a bunch of, th that was your question, right? Do you have to know a bunch of different things to be successful in this industry? Sorry. Yeah. Can you yeah. Well, it, it was more, it, it spoke more to um, like, if you have any judgments or any comments about the industry that you constantly have to keep learning, but you, you answered it well. Go, go ahead. Just right. Continue. Yeah. Finish the point. Yeah. No, I, I, so Yeah, I, I think expanding the definition expanding the definition we have in our minds of creativity is helpful for making it feasible or something that makes money. Like mm -hmm. in the end, that's how you bring value is you solve a problem. And you can't just say, Hey, look at my solution. Um, it solves things versus what's your problem? How can I help you solve it? I think outside of making pretty pictures, that's something I enjoy. Where I talk to people and let's say they're stuck with something, whether it's like uh, you know, yeah, a very personal, emotional frustration they have, um, whether it's a problem with how to word something like a text message. I enjoy, and I think that's something me and my wife bond over is is finding like creative solutions to like really everyday things like shopping online for like clothes for Lily or for ourselves and we don't look at it like okay let's just get get it it's like but what is the best thing to get here what is like oh we should get these neutrals because we can pair them with more things um you know like I think um anyway that's all to say I think you need to be able to to solve a problem and that's the thing is I think people should and that sounds like that's some unique way of thinking, but I think every creative person, everyone who likes to draw anime or likes to make videos, 
can shift it to that is that you can help people solve problems and i think in the case of um, content though it's a little different because it is a little bit closer to artistry where you're just trying to make something of value that people will consume but um, in the end i think if you can if you can create something beautiful that's solving a problem whether it's a problem that someone um, expressed to you or that you were able to bring out of someone or it's um, a problem that is solved by um, watching viewing or consuming um, the art that you make then you should be good also on a very practical note I think um, I think there is definitely a disparity about what is paid for creative services here and what is paid for them abroad um, I do think maybe that's not just a creative um, industry problem it's like a general economy thing like there are lawyers like, on upwork man <laughs> <laughs> like like basically it's um it's it's just like the disparity is kind of crazy and you know at least right now in the time of this recording um the disparity is so that you can ask for like an hourly rate that's really attractive to someone abroad and you'll be getting a sweet deal here. Um, like the, I think the, um, yeah, I mean, it's just, so, so uh, what I mean to say is I think finding the, 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 the people who will, who will value your work. Um, I've seen a lot of creative people here find success by working with clients abroad, which has become so much easier now since the, the forced um, digital work of the pandemic is that like, if you can adjust the hours, what makes you different? Let's say you're working with someone in LA or New York or whatever. If you can, if you can work the same hours or be as available online to someone who lives there and who isn't as available online, what's the difference? Why wouldn't they hire you? Like your cost of living is less. And so you can actually ask for less. If you can do better work or just as good work, what, like why wouldn't they hire you? So, but what I've seen a lot of people do too is they they do some work for people um, abroad, and the increased the increased pay allows them to create better work, and then that also creates confidence so that when they do work with people here, they're quoting something closer to what they were quoting their international clients, and that confidence. And the, the, the ask actually allows clients here to be like, okay, um, we'll, we'll pay you that much. But so often, it's tricky, I think, at least in my experience, it, it feels tricky to try and climb that, that price um, ladder here. Um, it seems really useful for most of the creative people I know to have tapped into um, international clients and then circled back around. Uh, so... I guess one thing that I have to ask is, considering right that you, uh, you you know you have you have this whole paradigm of arbitrage right where where like you take the demand for work somewhere halfway around the world and you use that to leverage your own development as a creative by being exposed to uh, work that you can take more quote end quote seriously because of the amount of value that it generates in your life. Um, Notwithstanding that you do have some very impressive clientele here in the Philippines, right? Mm -hmm. So 
you, uh, Carl, actually, that's the reason why I invited you onto the podcast in the first place. Because notwithstanding, of course, that, that arbitrage phenomenon that you outlined, you, you are able to solicit what many would consider an uh uh, uh, an impressive clientele here in the Philippines in like large corporations, right? And so I guess uh, for the benefit of the listeners, I wanted to ask how you were able to go about soliciting uh, that kind of work from, you know, uh, domestic demand, notwithstanding, mm. you know, uh, the challenges that you outlined, which is that, you know, they may not pay as much, right? Yeah. And yet you are able to hurdle that obstacle. I think, um, you know, I think the first, um, qualifier here would be that a lot of the work for these brands has been through an ad agency, which means which means the the need to like walk the talk or show up with value comes mainly in um, showing the ad agencies that I have what it takes to to work with um, clients like that. So, um, for example. A lot of the, the work that I really enjoyed has come through a collaboration with an agency here um, called BBDO Guerrero, which is the the Philippine the, the the branch in the Philippines for BBDO. And um, I started I started work with them on a really like simple project, which I'm actually making a breakdown video for for my. <laughs> my first YouTube video coming up. And um, I think, um, honestly, because cause it, I, I'm, I'm trying to imagine the question posed from maybe my younger self and being like, oh, how did you end up working with, like, you know, um, what are, like, M&Ms or something? Or, um, and, and I think the, 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 the clearest the clearest way that I've seen getting there was was really through like um, personal connections that I invested in, or or new connections that I invested in, and that was always with meeting someone. And so, for example, maybe it helps. It's 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 helpful to to retrace the steps quickly. And um, so, once again, the bigger brands here usually go through an ad agency. And then the ad agency looks for a production house or directors, and that's where I come in. So there is a kind of buffer of the weight and the, you know, the pull of an ad agency, especially one that's established like BBDO, and then they put their trust in you. So knowing, I think that's also part of um, um, making money from creativity is knowing who you're who your client is. And in this case, actually, my immediate client is the ad agency. If I can make them look good to their clients, then um, they'll come and hire me again. So, but in that case, what happened was I had a much smaller project with, with, with some, and I made friends in that, in that production. And then um, from there, one of the producers was hired in BBDO Flair's internal um, production house. And then she remembered working with me and she brought me in for that project and that was for Yellow Cab. Now the production, the head of production for BBDO Flair um, had just been um, brought in, hired from, his previous job was in London doing really amazing like top-notch commercials 
and he was headed to kind of push the production house within BBDO Flair. And so meeting him also exposed me to a lot of like world-class ways of working. And I learned so much and I still learn so much from, uh, from David, um, David Wright, great guy. We're uh, still friends and he's ended up being the Ninong of Lily because he's, uh, he's so nice and so, so kind and he's so sweet to Lily too, my kid. Um, so, but basically, um, so yeah, I guess it's, it's two tiers to give a simple answer is that there is the pull of the ad agency. So if I can show the ad agency that I can keep up with or keep up with the clients and produce ideas or jam with them in a way that they enjoy and that brings value to their clients and makes them look good, then they'll keep hiring me for clients like that. And second, personal um, personal relationships that I've invested in just knowing, um, meeting people and being nice to them. Like, I mean, David is the Ninong to Lily, not for some sort of professional, you know, uh, politicking so that I get more projects. Like, I met David from a project. Um, he was a great guy and I enjoy, enjoy, I still enjoy talking to him and, and jamming with him um, on productions. And then separately, as a friend, um, I also wanted him to be uh, Lily's Ninong because he was so kind there. It wasn't like some sort of, hey, if I, uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> But um, if you yeah, keep talking so those... about it, like you'll you'll introduce doubt, man. Just just move on yeah, yeah, to the next topic. <laughs> <laughs> With recent um, political happenings, yeah. No, so <laughs> I guess the yeah, it was that. I think it was um, just talking to people and meeting with people. And I actually realized that kind of early on when I was trying to like every now and then I really do think about um, my like where I'd like to go, where I'd like to go creatively. And so that means like positioning myself um, properly. And that means, um, and I noticed that what got me to the next thing so often was meeting up with people and, and talking to people. So whenever there's an opportunity to meet someone, um, I do. And I, I've, I've kind of like looked back on what's worked and I retraced that. And it was always like I met uh, Kaloy Solyonko, another director here for coffee. And then he introduced me to uh, Luisa. Luisa ended up being the um, EP in BBDO Flair. So when she needed a project that was miniatures, she called me. And then that's where I met David. And then I do a lot of work with BBDO Flair now. So that's been great. And by the way, another disclaimer is like, these are these are big clients. And I think actually maybe one of the biggest was with Spam. And they, they flew in their, their marketing head, and she was so nice. And actually, the nicest and the best clients um, end up giving you the space to be creative, and you actually like can do the better work um, for them. So it, it works both ways. But, um, you know, with, with her and a lot of the work that I do, just because like you work, a lot of directors get pigeonholed. That's what was obvious early on. So I think to me, I was like, well, let me just pick my pigeonhole. So <laughs> when you're new, um, a, lot of, a lot of production houses will be like, hey, you're new. Here's some projects. Like there's a bunch of projects, I think, that the rock star directors don't want to take. 
And so a lot of the new directors, they'll be like, hey, I'll take anything um, as long as, you know, you pay me. But the thing is, if you do a good job, they'll give you more of that project. And so early on, I knew that I wanted to do more animation and art-directed work. And I mean, no one, no one will hire me for a hair commercial, a car commercial, you know, um, a documentary style commercial, um, you know, a lifestyle commercial because my reel doesn't have that work. Clients want to hire you for work that they've seen you do well. They're not going to take, so if you want clients to hire you for work and you have no work, the key is really to make that work on your own and prove to them, look, I can do it. And then they'll hire you more for that. Um, they're not going to be like, hey, let's let's gamble a couple million on this guy um, who's never done it. But, you know, I really like him. Like he's he's got a he's got a good heart. No, it, it doesn't it doesn't work like that. Right. So. So, yeah. So I I I picked my pigeonhole. And so and, and I say that because, yeah, these are big clients, but they are also for a specific kind of commercial or video. Um, and, and I'm fine with that. Mm. So it's actually one of those things though, right? Like being pigeonholed, I guess doesn't, doesn't have to automatically be a bad thing. Like I, I, you know, like Wes Anderson doesn't do action movies, right? Because his style is so suited to, you know, these whimsical, uh, what would you call them? Dramas or stories. But anyway, yeah. Uh, to your point though, right? Like, uh, of being able to solicit these, uh, impressive clients, right? Uh, and you, you've answered a few of the questions I sent you already, so let me just... Uh, you sure. were able also to garner some awards for yourself, right? Uh, how is it that you were even considered for uh, the awards that you've won, right? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So th- this, is, this is also another thing that's, that's very helpful to have been working through agency because ad agencies are constantly looking to... Um, I think for ad agencies, the awards they win is really like their currency and leverage with clients. And so they're very actively um, doing projects to um, to push for awards. And in in that case, I happened to be in those projects that they had submitted for awards and they were they were kind of different. I think awards like projects that are also quite different. And so what happened, was they the agency themselves kind of go and reach out and apply for those awards and I, i'm i'm kind of collateral damage well you know like i'm um yeah so i mean that's that's the short and skinny for the awards and honestly actually they when it comes to the just a second <coughs> i think the the most awards have actually I think in college I was like, oh, look at these, um, look at these designers with awards. Like it's so fancy. They must only get the big projects. They must only get the big projects. And in my case, um, I actually haven't seen any immediate immediate effect on the projects I've been able to take. The most immediate effect has been how well I've built rapport with my collaborators whether that's an ad agency whether that's another middleman for um, clients abroad um, or whether that's talking to the clients and um, 
you know, just connecting with them and they know because people want to work with people they can connect with. So more than I don't think anyone has ever approached me like, hey, I noticed you were, you know, you got this award. Also, I well, I don't have it on my website or anything. So um, not yet. Anyway, um, they yeah, they, it's never been like, hey, I heard you won this award. Can you do this work for us? I think the most value it's brought me was maybe there's times when I'm having a creative existential crisis where I'm like, oh, I haven't done a project in months because I'm very picky with my projects too, especially for advertising. So there'll be dry months and I'm fine with that because it also means I don't end up exerting effort on projects I don't really, I'm not really passionate about and I don't think I can actually bring value for the client or the agency. But there, you know, if it's been like a few months, it can be like, oh, who am I? Am I, am I really a director? Am I, am I really an artist? And there was also this one time a client um, said, oh, who, who is this guy? I haven't heard of him. And then I asked the, um, the producer that I work with a lot to say, oh, you can say that, you know, I've won this and, and that award to kind of put them at ease. But yeah, it's it's not as it's not as sexy as I I thought it was, and a lot of it was through agency. So, mm. so uh, I have to ask though, Carl, right? Because this is something that I think a lot of um, creatives will struggle with, right? Uh, how do you value your time, or like how do you decide to charge for your services, right? Like, because um, that's something that uh, I think requires an amount of trial and error, and I've received mm -hmm. different responses from different people. But maybe for someone who's made it, like you could articulate exactly how it is you decide, like if this project is worth the time and energy. I don't know if I've made it unless I'm, you know, mis <laughs> misunderstanding what you mean by that. Like, but um, I think definitely, um, I think one key thing is not being so precious about it. Like whether in the lower spectrum or the higher spectrum. I've seen people, like people who I've worked with in the creative industry, they basically know how to hustle, which means they've figured out um, the costs that they have and how much they need to make. They've got some information on what the rates people are willing to pay, and then they charge that. So I know the holy grail of this, which maybe some people have seen online, is to do value-based pricing and to price what the value of the output to the client is instead of just charging your time but right now for me <clears throat> so there's two there's two ways i price for things and uh, for commercial directing that's um that's more like a lump sum and then there's for the work i do for um, other companies i use a sort of hourly or daily rate um, especially abroad, they, they, they like day rates so that they can kind of estimate. You give them how many days it'll take, and then you can give a proper cost estimate. So um, the nitty-gritty is <clears throat> there's a website which maybe I can find, and then you can put on show notes or whatever. Yeah, sure. Where you kind of, you kind of and I don't have it with me now, but um, you basically put in um, the costs you have, and then it helps you figure out um, what what you should be charging for a day rate based on your costs. That's really helpful because that should be the minimum that you're charging. 
and then <clears throat> so once you figure out let's say oh whether you know do i live with my parents do i live alone how much is my rent how much do i pay for groceries and how much do you know so you you tally all your costs for the month and you know that you need to make x amount for the month and then you di you divide that by how many days you would like to work for the month so i mean you could go extreme and be like well i only want to work for 5 days in a month so if you want to work for 5 days in a month <clears throat> you need to be charging a huge amount a relatively huge amount for those 5 days if you're going to work for you know monday to friday on all those days and that could be a more reasonable amount <clears throat> but you take your cost and divide it by how many days in a month you you want to be working and then you find that rate and then now you know and then you kind of need to give it a buffer because it's not like especially as a freelancer people aren't gonna you're not gonna have a job every day so you can kind of estimate based on how much and i think tracking how you've worked and how many clients you've gotten is also helpful because you can know that oh i actually only get um two to three weeks of work in a month and so you divide it by that and then now you have that rate of your cost and so now you know how much the minimum is you need to charge so for me i took that and i also i also like based it off um how much directors were making and in the commercial world what happened was i came in through um i took a workshop well for any you know anyone who wants to see if this will still work right now there's no <clears throat> workshop but there was a workshop that uh an established production house was holding <clears throat> and uh there was one class on commercial directing and i took that one and my friend took the one on cinematography and with the instructors after we finished the workshop we said because they did say they were open to apprenticeship and stuff so we asked them hey can we apprentice under you and it just so happened that <clears throat> the director carlo ledesma and the um cinematographer who he had worked with a lot um fung who works in australia now um they they were also the the mentors that me and my friend asked so ian went to work for fung to apprentice under fung and i went to apprentice under um carlo ledesma and <clears throat> learning learning from them just made it so we we saw how the process was done um the whole the whole process of things and that included after that the production house was like hey um there's this smaller project do you want to take it and i was like cool and they didn't ask for my talent fee they just give me they just gave me uh, my check after the project which was awesome because it was like the most money i had made up to that point that was like the first time someone had paid me a reasonable amount for my um for my creativity like up to that point it was like yeah i guess we'll charge this and you know there was a lot of support from um me and ian were both living in places that were funded by um our you know our families or our parents were still giving us money or at least me i know ian was hustling for a long time but so um so i guess it's that it's like that was helpful too because after that i did have to clarify how much i did want to charge so there's the rates that the industry um is used to giving and then the costs that i have and then you kind of triangulate from there but but knowing your costs is a huge thing yeah
it, it, it's one of those things though. Like, so I have to clarify what I mean when I say when I said a while ago that you you'd made it. I just want to say that uh, I meant really that you made being a creative like an integral part of your life. Not that you're yeah. this incredibly successful Wes Anderson figure. Yeah, in no. Philippines Far cinema. from it. No. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But but you you've successfully making a living from this. Uh, what some uh, uh, what you what some would say is an unstable career, right? Yeah. Yeah. And like I can't help but reflect like on some of the things that you were saying and arriving at costs because like say for example lawyers like theoretically if we go by like the co- the code of ethics that lawyers have we're supposed to bill hourly we're supposed to provide our clients with like uh, the breakdowns of the time we've spent on the matters that they've assigned to us and be very terribly judicious and in, along the way we're supposed to be paid uh, a good amount of money for the trouble of doing the things our clients asked and, you know, being so judicious with the use of our time. Uh, in truth and in fact, in the Philippines, nobody is interested in that. Nobody cares how, that I send, like, these complicated breakdowns of, like, how much time I spent on the matters that were assigned to me. They just want a number up front, how much it costs. And mm. uh, they want to they know that this is it. This is all that they're going to have to pay. And, uh... Like it's 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 a challenge, you know, to be able to adapt like a uh, a discipline, yeah. right? No, to, that's true. <clears throat> yeah, to to this incredibly rigid um, structure, right? I I can't I I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself though. And the one of the biggest hurdles is really coming up with that number, right? Uh, like you you probably have like a lot of different things, like a lot of different services that you can offer, uh, right? And however. Like, I kind of have the same problem, but the thing is, I interact with like really archaic processes. So, one of the problems that I constantly have to reconfront is that when I interact with like a government office, I don't know if it's going to take me six months or three years to get this project that my client wants a, a single sticker price on to be mm. done, right? And uh, that that's a that's a calculus that's really hard to do. So I'm definitely going to be taking some of the insights that you've given and try as much as possible to apply them to uh, my yeah. context as it works. Yeah, yeah. I think, but I'm to um, to add to that. I think bare bones, the most mm-hmm. useful thing, has mm-hmm. been arriving on a day rate, and then using that to estimate days. Right? Like, um, <clears throat> I asked a guy. <clears throat> I think it, it's it's really specific to whatever um, industry you're in, but you should also know. Like having the cost is helpful, but then you need to find that day rate. And then sometimes you'll be like, you do the math and it's like, oh, I guess this is the day rate. But then after a while, like you said, in practice, you're like, oh, I actually don't work that much. And I actually give a lot on those days that I work. And then so once you have that um, that 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 day rate amount and then you can estimate how many days it takes you. What's been helpful for me in... Because I think advertising is really rigid too. They just want an upfront amount. But if if I can with 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 freelance projects, I'll be like, this is the estimated number of days, which means it'll cost me this much multiplied by my day rate. And then I tell them if it takes longer, I'll charge you additional days. Um, and then to show that in the estimate, and then they'll be like, you know, yes or no. But I think it's it's reasonable because if I were a client, I'd also want the ballpark figure. I don't want like a uh, a continuous sticker on someone's like, yeah, it's taking me longer than usual. It's like, I want an estimate of days. I want to know how much that'll cost. And then if they told me, and by the way, if it takes longer, I'll charge you for another day. I think that's that's fine. Okay. So just find, could, if, find the day rate. 
<laughs> if I could just share some funny anecdotes, though, like some unique constraints that exist only in the legal industry. And then it's like, uh, like I have clients come up to me and they say, attorney, I know how it works. Like we're supposed to, I know, I'm supposed to pay you this acceptance fee. And then padung raman untanig amicable settlement or papunta lang naman to sa amicable settlement. So why are you charging me the full rate? If um, you know, you know, all I really care about is getting an amicable settlement, and I just tell them, like, uh, you know, what if the other side says no? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then I have another one. It's like, why is it so expensive, right? Like, well, uh, you know, you're asking me to throw a family member in jail, right? Like, how much, <laughs> how much would you put? A, like, what, 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 like, what is the price you'd put, price on you put on that service? <laughs> and some, some would say very high, right? Other people would say very high. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and th- that's something that's unique, to, I guess, to the challenges that I have to confront. Um, but yeah, anyway, going away from these very morbid topics, <laughs> um, you, you recently transitioned into like computer-generated imagery or CGI, as like the uh, lay, lay folk will understand it. How does that fit into the plan you have for yourself as a creative? Um, I think I realized um, CGI is something that's, really um exciting for me because especially with where the with where the technology is now where the where the software is now um when i was when i was directing i think there's definitely this pressure among at least among the directors who i knew um i felt like for me it felt like there was this pressure to do story-driven things. And a lot of the work I do is very visually driven, is very like direct communication driven. And I never, I was never really enticed by story. Like it just felt like a little boring. And I wasn't really into, I don't think, I don't know if I'll ever make, you know, a full film. And I think definitely part of it was this um, being scared of, eliciting a performance because I, I don't think that's a strength of mine. But I think, and also it was this preference to be able to control things. And I think CG and animation actually affords me those two things is that I can kind of craft a performance in the safety and comfort safety, like it's dangerous to <laughs> to elicit a performance in the safety and comfort of my home on with myself. Um, in that I can plan out, for example, when you're doing a performance in animation, whether it's 2D or 3D, you can massage it and you can you can get better at it. You can improve it and see where the timing fits. But on set, if it's with an actor, it's very instant. And if you can't find a solution, then people are like, hey, it doesn't look good. So I think with CGI, at least for me, it's it's had that creative safety to be able to craft something until it looks good, whether that's in performance or animation or the look. And I think that's actually one thing that's made it for me in some ways what I've liked about the remote shoot setup because that's what's had to happen since the while we're recording this. It's hopefully the tail end of the pandemic in this country but anyway a lot of the shoots i've had to do um were done remotely which is through zoom so there's a skeletal set there's a skeletal crew on set and then they patch the the feed um to the client or to agency and to me and in my case a lot of the work i've done i've actually been able i think to do a better job remotely 
because I have all the information I need, I'm able to record some of the video and, and put it into the edit. I've been able to be more decisive, which I think is a huge thing for a director. It's not helpful for people on set if you're too open and like, I don't know, you know, let's see what, um, I'm not sure what I want. Like you need to be able to know what you want. And, and post and CG and all that has been, that's a place where I'm comfortable to know what I want. So um, that's why I'm excited about it. So animation in general, whether that's 2D and 3D and also um, 3D, like the, the photorealism and the creation of these worlds, I think is really fascinating to me. Um, yeah, the idea of like, building these worlds and that becoming more accessible to people is really, really interesting to me. Mm. Well, it's actually one of those like inherent tensions in the creative industry these days, though, because I think there's this phenomenon going on, and I'm not sure if I'm going to be butchering the name or not. It's called pre-rendering, where like they approach a director with like a... A, a project and you have you have some famous directors actually turning down the the projects because like too much of the project has been pre-rendered this is like famous in the marvel movies because you know they have to have these big action set pieces that they know are going to happen in the film and they're getting the director after the fact and he doesn't have he doesn't have much influence in the story beats and so because there's so much money behind these projects uh like they they can't afford these uh, things that they've planned like six years in advance not to happen right and they they'd rather know so they pre-render right they rather know what these mm -hmm. what the eventual product will look like so they pre-render uh like is this like pre-visualization pre-vis yeah there you go pre-vis yeah that, that's yeah. actually the term i think yeah yeah pre-vis yeah. i mean i i for me i at least in my experience i love pre-vis because i think when you're doing a project, like a video project of any kind or even a film, you're essentially making it several times. You make it the first time with a script and then you make it again with something called an, um, well, with a storyboard, really. You sketch it out and you sketch out the beats and then you make it again when you put that storyboard to motion through something like an animatic where it's just the still frames one after the other and then you make it again when you do the previs, which is like you're just testing out the blocking and then you make it again when you finally render. And each time you make it, it becomes clearer and clearer to you. And I think, um, at least in film, um, what it might be is that the directors who are more purist about on-camera and performance, that's where the magic happens. And so that's what they don't like being butchered by previous because all the timing is set beforehand. I think they're different mediums almost. You know, getting capture on-cam and the controllability of something that's been pre-visualized they're like two different i mean it's like comparing painting and dancing right like you can't you can say yeah i prefer dancing it's instant it's in the moment but it's different from painting someone has um sketched that out has spent hours doing that like i think they're just two different art forms okay so uh aside from pre-visual pre-visualization, uh, there are although other interesting ways in which technology has kind of in intersected with the creative field. Um, and this is something I, I hope to get your particular assistance with. What is an NFT? <laughs> um, so um, before this podcast, I had to do a little review to make sure I was giving the correct answer. Um, so the technical definition and 
really without even going too deep on it because I don't think I could give a fully um, good deep answer. But NFT uh, stands for non-fungible token, um, which just means that the thing is unique and irreplaceable. So there are, in real life, there's a bunch of things like that. But it's the first time to have that on the digital format. So um, the simplest answer I've heard that I like is it's at least in the form of art. So there's different, there's different like um, ways that an NFT could be used. Um, one of them that's relevant uh, to myself at least is that um, for art. So before digital art was just very copyable, right? Uh, in the same way that you could have, um, yeah, well basically like someone uploads their art, you could screenshot it, you could save a JPEG of it, and then you have that digital art, right? So the NFT version of an artwork is, the NFT will have the artwork, but it'll signify if you own the NFT on your blockchain wallet, on your crypto wallet, that you own a version of that artwork. So it's, it's, just, it's just a way to verify on the blockchain that you own something specifically. It's just a way to create <laughs> digital scarcity. I feel like the more, the more I get into it, the more um, muddy it sounds. But I think the simplest answer I've heard for, for that type of thing is you can think of it like a signed print poster. So let's say, because digital art is very reproducible, right? So if I make an artwork and then I make a print, if I make a limited edition of 100 prints and then I sign each one, number one, Carl Graham, number two, Carl Graham, if you own that, you have number two, and my signature means that that is number two, and there's only a hundred. So that I think that's the easiest way to understand. It's like a digital version of that. Mm. So that's the art, um, the art application, but you could apply it to a bunch of things. And one thing that I found um, really exciting is its application in real estate, and people are doing this. I think someone's already done this. It's like the first. A legit house sold. So NFTs could replace um, or work in tandem with a deed, for example. Because um, the way, correct me if I'm wrong, the way, the way deeds work is that there's an external party like a government office or someone that verifies that yes, this is the deed to this house and when ownership is transferred, the that external party says yes it, it's now transferred and there's like there's also a record of what happened to a property like if you know there was a fire or whatever i don't know if this is connected necessarily to the deed but there's a record of things that have happened to it and the thing is even though there's that's verifiable with the external party people can cheat that like you could you know you could um uh, counterfeit or modify certain things on that ledger so that it's like, you know what, it didn't, it didn't really <laughs> burn down. Or, you know, just removing that entry so that the value doesn't seem to go down. But in the case of an NFT version of that, because NFTs live on the blockchain, which is basically the easy way to understand it is a bunch of computers verifying something to be true. 
So I can't cheat it because there's like 99 more computers or more, you know, thousands of computers saying that this is what happened. So traditionally, you would just need to cheat one copy, like the official copy. But in this case, because the copy is distributed to a huge network, it's harder, oh, they say virtually impossible to, to cheat so that your ledger of something is, um, is accurate. So if you, were, if you were selling property with an NFT, one, you could be sure that it's um, verifiable. And two, it would be so much smoother because it would be a digital version of all the uh, current crap you have to do to, to transfer ownership of something. Like I currently have to get a, a deed from Cebu because the loan for um, some property that um, that that I that I have and now have fully paid for from the bank, the bank branch is in Cebu, so I, I they won't send it via courier. So I technically have to go to Cebu, like I have to fly to Cebu to get it or something like that, and then fly back. If this were an NFT, they would just have to transfer it to my to my wallet. So yeah. Or, or you could you could avail of a more old school form of cryptography and uh, get a notary public to execute for you a special power of attorney and then mail the special power of attorney to your representative, uh, and then that oh. would satisfy the security requirement of the bank that you have to come pick it up yourself. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> but isn't it like my my problem is getting the deed to Manila? Yeah. That... Well. Well, no. The thing is, because once once the deed has, you know, you you empower your representative to get the deed. Because really, the, the the issue is the bank, right? Yeah, yeah. They have a due diligence requirement that they have to meet. They want to be sure that the deed makes it into the hands of someone right. who actually has a right to possess it. And so, the way you meet that hurdle is uh, by yeah, authorizing a representative, right? And uh, whether or not, and 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 what happens to the deed after that point is entirely within the control of your representative and he can put it in an envelope and mail it to you. Right. Uh, I know a part of me is also wondering like is no yeah they they did say that in the email but part of me is wondering well if the bank won't sell, send it via courier should I send it via courier? <laughs> like I'm also scared <laughs> like maybe there's some wisdom here and not so but yeah okay I, I hear what you're saying yeah. Well yeah it, it's one of those things but uh going back to the point of like NFTs in general though like uh, I personally, I buy like numbered prints sometimes mm -hmm. for like oh, yeah. uh, for video games. Like I buy from this one art house in um, the Netherlands called Cook and Becker, and so they okay. do these numbered prints. I'm I'm somewhat familiar with this manufactured scarcity, but it's important I think that you have this manufactured scarcity because it's what allows I think uh, artists to uh, profit by his uh, profit by his by his uh, creative pursuits, and it's important that. Uh, you know, the commodification occur. It's just that what's interesting about NFTs is, is it's it's such a new implementation using such mm -hmm. a novel technology, right? Mm -hmm. That And in light also of the fact that the transactions have gone into like the hundreds of millions that I think we understand that uh, this isn't like some ticket to like being rich because you see a lot of people now losing money on speculating on NFTs. And yeah. uh, I think that that comes from a lack of understanding of what it is. Like they hear crypto and then automatically whatever appears next to crypto or blockchain, right, will increase the value yeah. of, of the, the thing that's being sold, which, which, you know, doesn't speak anything about its intrinsic value, but more to 
the the, the technology trend. that implements it. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So. There's a lot of scammers and a lot of a lot of a lot of, you know, uh, trendy things. And you know, you can tell when you look around in NFTs. So like, you could just okay, I want to do some art, but honestly, a lot of it is hypey right now. So even if you did do your own art, like um, I've got a friend who um, she's she's a a great fine artist, and she released a, an NFT collection. But you know, you it's a different space. So it's hard to make it sell out um, no matter how good you are because you, you have to kind of play the game. Just like in the fine art world, you have to play the game where you have to, you have to know the right people, get in front of the right eyes. Um, I think, well, yeah. So I think that's specific to crypto now. I mean, in any creative endeavor, I don't think talent is enough as we talked about earlier. You know, like there's a certain amount of hustle. But in crypto now, it's so new. It's so hypey. Um, there's so many things because people are really excited about it. So there's so many ways it's scammy. And there's also a lot of ways where it's exciting. And even the people who are trying to do the best with it, because the technology is new, people screw up. Like people, like <laughs> there's this thing, I mean, in crypto, not necessarily NFTs. Like if you, and there's a bunch of like intricacies that like you have to read and find out about. And it's not so immediately available yet. Because so like if you, for example, if your wallet or you're keeping some money is on like you have coins so you have a currency in the ethereum chain right and you're trying to you transfer that money to an address that's on a different chain like it's not the ethereum chain you just mm-hmm. like you just lose that money it's just gone <laughs> no one can get it because it was a technical error because like you've transferred it to a chain that it, so it's like it's just gone and you know that's crazy so if you make a mistake but yeah anyway okay this cooking becker thing is so cool how, how long have you been buying from this cooking becker place uh well i only so how long have i been buying from the cooking becker place i only really bought the one artwork from them because i played a really cool video game uh, it's called The Last of Us Part Two, oh, and yeah. so have you played? Did you play the first one, Last of Us Part One? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I really, I really loved it, and so um, I kind of entertained uh, the idea of like investing in some art from them. Not really investing. I really liked the game, so it wasn't really an investment decision. So I bought. So I, I went to their page. I checked it out. Said I'm gonna sleep on it for a second, and then uh, they said. Oh, uh, I checked the website again like a day or two later, and then the the print, the particular print I wanted, had sold out, and it was concept art for the ending scene of the video game, which was like the most iconic scene. And so I dropped them an email, and I said, "Hi, like I, you know, this game really resonated with me emotionally, and I would really like something physical to remember the game by, right?" Wow. And then the the nice people at Cook and Becker, this is me plugging them a little bit, were so kind. They said, you know what? I think I have a few artist proofs that are uh, still here. If you'd like, we could send you one of those. Wow. Yeah. Was it signed or anything? Are all of them supposed to be signed? Are they normally signed? No. Yeah, they're all I signed. Think. Yeah. Was the proof signed because the artists gave it a go-ahead? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because they like, oh, you know, they that's say, cooler. oh, we like... That's cooler, yeah. man. A proof. No one yeah. has like no one has that right. 
Yeah, and then like I was I was checking. I'd never sell the the piece, mind you. Uh, I got it for like a hundred twenty dollars, and now on eBay, like uh, secondhand dealers are selling them for like a thousand or something. Really, prints? Wow, that's crazy. That's yeah, cool. I don't know if anyone bites because it it still has the like uh, make an offer option, and so right, you know it's right, it's right. it's listed at a thousand, but people probably lowball the dealers too. But yeah, no, it was it was interesting, and so that's why when I see NFTs, which is like a really wide scale implementation, and it, it reduces the barriers to entry because you don't need a printer, you don't need someone to yeah uh, to like an intermediary like the like Cook and Becker to yeah. to make a, a no a print because I, I presumably like only a certain caliber of artist even even merits the attention of a place like Cook and Becker. Mm-hmm. Uh, now the barrier of entry to being an artist and being a creative and making it profitable are probably way lower than they were previously. Mm. Yeah. On, on that, uh, yeah, go ahead. Go. No, I think for me, like what really excites me that I didn't have to, a lot of the idea of like art and NFTs, I had to kind of read about to kind of understand like, okay, maybe because um, I had the same initial reaction. Like this is a joke, right? <laughs> like <laughs> you're trying to make this rare. Like you're trying to make this a thing. Um, but like, yeah, some some arguments, like, for example, a lot of people who buy really famous real art, um, they don't even keep them in their homes because it's too, like, fragile. Like, they keep them in a, have you seen Tenet? What's it called? Uh, like a... Like an airtight safe or something, yeah. Yeah, there's a specific term for it. But, like, they, they keep them there to avoid taxes and, like, so they own it, but they don't even see it, right? A they can haven? say they... No, 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 it's a... What's it called? Tenet Keep Art Area. <laughs> just, if anyone's listening to this, like, please just skip. A free port? Side. Yes, a free port. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, lawyer. So, um, yeah, so, um, yeah, so the, um, you know, like, kind of, kind of reading on that, it's like, okay, so there's a lot to just say about, like, yeah, I own it. Um and, you know, like it starts to make sense. But for me, what didn't need convincing is there's a bunch of things that I value that I just wish were digital, like a bunch of books, for example. Um, and that's not even necessarily tied to NFTs, but there's an aspect of it. I think there's an aspect of it where I want a digital experience that feels just as thought out as the physical experience. That's one. You know, like, for example, that's a really good book. You can't. Like especially one that's like thought of the graphic design, turning that into an app that you can read on your iPhone, it's not the same thing. You can't just have a PDF, right? But if there were a way to make it an app, okay, so that's one thing, like a complete digital experience. The other thing is that ownership because you have a bookshelf at home. Someone comes to your house and it's like, oh, you read these books, that's so cool. Now imagine a bookshelf you could have on, let's say, you know, rami.wallet.com or wallet.com slash rami. Or, you know, wherever social thing. And then people, you, they can just look you up and then they see your NFTs like, oh, Rami's read these books. He's like me. Like, people use examples like, oh, you know, you want an NFT for your Air Jordans or, you know, hypey things. And that doesn't necessarily resonate with me. But just like being able to share with someone passively the fact that, oh, cool, there's a lot of these common interests. That makes complete sense to me. Like, that's, yeah. <laughs> mm. Makes complete well, sense to me, that part. 
Well, hopefully they, they have more inclusive implementations where it's not so hypey and they actually transition. One of my most, one of my most boring examples when it comes to the blockchain is uh, that, you know, like people use it for like stock keeping, like uh, uh, zero knowledge proof for stock keeping. That means any stock room in the country for your large operation has a good idea of like the, mm -hmm. the number of units for a particular uh, SKU yeah. or stock keeping unit. Are right? people already uh, doing that? Or is I, that something? Well, I, if they are, it's over, it's so overtaken by like uh, the the overbearingness of crypto, you know. <laughs> well, I yeah, guess yeah. we'll never know. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's exactly one good application. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, anyway, we'll, we'll, let's leave aside NFTs though, and let me ask you something that's like really hypey, right? Uh, to use your words, how, how is the metaverse like? What is what is what does the metaverse mean for someone who's like? just getting into a computer graphics and like, you know, this, it opens up this broad range of opportunities now for someone like yourself. Uh, and so if you, it would help if you could explain to us what the metaverse is and what it means for you. Yeah. Um, it's funny because I think like I have, I have a bunch of interests and um, with certain things and then like other aspects of me don't necessarily um, completely align. So there was a time when I was getting really into Blender, which is a free 3D software. And, you know, the character, like the character-based part of it, because Blender as a software is used widely by a lot of people who do more character art. Um, and so I was getting really excited about that. And But I'm not really like a character kind of guy. I'm not really so illustrative or narrative or, you know, story driven in that case. But um, all this to say the metaverse is something that excites me because it's basically like, you know, the quickest kind of sketch you could give someone is if they've seen the movie Ready Player One. It's um, it's like a, like a digital universe or a digital world where people can kind of step in and, um, you know, there's often like an avatar and there's things you can do in that virtual universe that um, are analogous or similar to what you would do in real life. That sounds sometimes like a whole bunch of, and there's definitely like an aspect of it for me that's like, what's wrong with the real world, guys? <laughs> like, let's just use the real world. But I think um, one example is the difference that a Zoom call makes over an audio call so the fact that you can see someone or see you know a version of them really changes the experience of a conversation and being able to connect with someone in another country in a certain way like there's there's aspects that are helped by that um so it's it's basically that like this 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 universe where or this digital world where people can kind of log on there's often avatars and you'd be able to interact with other people so why is that exciting uh for someone who is a creator one it's obviously like the avatars right so um if in this real world if you're not into fashion right like you're not gonna dress people up or if you're not into accessories whatever but if let's say you are a digital creator and you care about you know designing characters now all of a sudden you're like hey, I could get into fashion in the metaverse. Why not? I don't need cloth. I don't need to source suppliers. I just need to be able to make the digital asset. Um, there's a lot of 
um, questions that come up because right now, a bunch of different people are making kind of different metaverses. So there's um, Sand, and then there's Facebook's, oh, well, sorry, Meta. You know, they're calling it Meta because they're trying to be like the metaverse. And one big aspect of what the best kind of metaverse would be is something that's decentralized. So ideally, not, not Meta, Facebook. You know, not what Facebook is becoming. But it's such a, oh, it's such, what a move, right? Of course, of course they'd want to get it straight into that. Like, I think for me, I'm convinced that it's the next move. It's what we're, it's what's going to happen. But, um, so yeah, so there's different, there's different metaverses that are kind of being built. And I think what might happen is, you know, you'll just kind of have to cross over. Maybe you'll have like different accounts or different avatars between metaverses. And um, there's obviously going to be popular ones. But uh, the other thing is like, if you are a content creator or, or, you know, like an asset creator there, you'd be making skins that presumably would, you know, in a perfect world, it would carry across because that's a big thing about Web 3. So there's Web 1, which was just about, correct me if I'm wrong here, if you've ever heard this, but Web 1 was just about oh, like on your own, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, just let me pause here and make sure I'm getting this right. Here you go. Web 1 versus Web 2 versus Web 3. So um, Web 1 was basically like, this is not helpful. Ah, here we go. Okay, Web 1 was like e-commerce, um, just having websites of proprietary hardware. This is what this graph is saying. Web 2 was a lot about sharing. Social media came Web 2. App Store, all these things. Um, marketplaces. Web 3, um, that's where NFTs and crypto come in. So right now, we're all going to Facebook to connect. Now, the dream of Web 3 is that we own our info again. People don't have to go to Facebook to get their photos. So you, you have like MetaMask is a wallet um, that you own. Um, you have the keys, not Facebook. You don't have to log on to Facebook to get your photos to share with friends. You control your info again. And so um, a metaverse that truly is Web3 would have to be decentralized. So what would that look like? How would we be able to support that? Um, yeah, so... So the whole decentralization is one thing. And then it also makes like, if you're going to make assets, how do you make an avatar that would, you know, carry over to something that's decentralized? You'd have to have um, like an open set of requirements to build that. For example, if you make a skin, a character skin, there would have to be a standard for how you would rig that skeleton so that <laughs> your character isn't all wonky in the metaverse. But Anyway, that might be jumping too deep into the weeds, but I hope that gives a kind of picture of what the metaverse is. So the only way that I really know about the implementation of like, uh, you know, these third party artists in the context of a platform, and this is me dating myself with the example a little bit, is in the context of WordPress, when you would have like these themes that would be for sale for like WordPress websites. And there are some people who made like substantial amounts of money from that. So I think, you know, like uh, this isn't the, the 
oh, you know, you're like an artist and you're making this thing uh, that's going to be sold on Metaverse and you're helping Facebook become terribly, terribly wealthy. Because actually, um, you know, if they provided, of course, Facebook or whoever, uh, whoever makes the Metaverse sets up the markets and stuff, right? Uh, there's substantial opportunity for an artist because imagine you can make a clothing line without <laughs> without needing a factory. You can make a clothing line without needing physical stores. And all, like the, the most difficult aspect of distribution is moving your mouse and pressing upload, you know? And that, that yeah. for me is like a terribly wonderful opportunity for an aspiring creative who's like figuring out a niche to occupy. Yeah, and that's I mean that's that that would be even good if like the metaverse was built on something so proprietary like Facebook, but like what what would, what's exciting about Web three is that even better would be that um, Facebook doesn't get a cut <laughs> because <laughs> so often when it has it 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 seems to you know it has not gone well when the gatekeepers. Um, have a cut so far like with big tech and all that right now so hopefully web3 it makes it so that like a lot of the middlemen are cut out so that it really is like you buy my my stuff like the money comes to me and that and how people say like how would you perpetuate that well that's why there's gas fees in crypto so the way that it keeps going now is that when there is that confirmation or whatever um, among all the computers so it's decentralized. Instead of Facebook processing it, all these computers are, and the gas fees that you pay for a transaction, which are huge right now for Ethereum, is distributed to the network so that everyone gets paid. So yes to what you're saying. And then if we could really make it decentralized, um, even better if it works. Yeah. My, my, my concern, though, is like, um, so I'm a pretty techie guy, right? Uh, so I built my own computer. Um, I like I like playing with custom software. Um, I even tried and gave up uh, uh, modeling things in 3D at some point. Uh, but I look at a platform that's open source, like say for example Linux, and that's a box of <laughs> that's a that's a like a, a can of worms. I, I'm not ready yeah. to open. Like even even as like uh, mentally uh, as much mental plasticity as I'm able to bring to the table, like open source implementations are really hard. So. What makes you, well, I mean, you know, y y the stated intention is that we, you know, own the platform because it's our data we're putting on, the implicit assertion being that it is open source and that no one large corporation owns it. Uh, do, you, do you think we'll get there? And maybe do you have any idea how we could make it? Yeah, I've talked to, to Chris about this and exactly what that sort of Web3 version of things will look like. Um, Obviously, the quality of the world and the platform is going to really drive usage, right? Like you could make something, oh, it's truly open source and whatever, but then it sucks. No one's going to want to use it. So exactly how we'll get there and exactly what the implementation will be so that we still own our data, I'm not sure. I mean, maybe Meta, Meta being face, you know, what you formerly called Facebook maybe they'll have to shift their business model and we will own our data, but they'll have another way to, you know, make it work. So I don't know. A lot of that, um, the details of that are, are unclear to me. But right now, um, yeah, you're right though. Even, even like a lot of crypto um, platforms right now, um, 
they feel wonky. You know, you don't feel super safe, as safe as you could. I think eventually it will come to a point. It'll have to, right? If, But there's a bunch of private entities also who are trying to make it good. So, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I'm not sure how it'll end up. Mm. So, um, particularly with, like, uh, the future, it seems that there's, like, a lot of uh, changes in store. So... What do you think about, and this is just a general question, what about what do you think about the introduction of VR VR headsets into mainstream culture? Do you think like that'll change the way content is consumed or the kinds of content that are consumed? Or uh, you know, will mm. will we largely do the same things we do now, which is like watch movies, um, watch cat videos? Yeah. Um definitely. I feel like um the technology moves in such a way that it's it's like closer to our closer to our brains. I don't know how to say that better, but it's like, um, for example, for educational purposes, it's like it feels like just tablets. Let's say it's like the information is on steroids. Like when my daughter um, uses a tablet. Like, you'll see so many kids. Like, I, I think I've shared this experience with other parents, too, where, like, the kid learns how to use an iPad so quickly, like, how to tap, where to go, because, like, it's been optimized for usability, right? The UX has been thought out so much that, like, a, uh, a kid could literally figure it out. So all that to say, um, I feel like there's two sides of the coin. When Lily uses an iPad, if she's um there's a there's a program we're totally fine with her using called Vooks. Vooks like video books. And it's like it's just like it reads out a book to you. It's great because um the way they structure it is like the the let the words appear and then the words kind of light up as the storybook is being said. So it's kind of like it's it's encouraging your child to read in a very soft way, yet engaging enough uh, to keep their attention. It's very nice animation, very nice art. Um, so it's like, if it's the wrong kind of information, it's going to be coming in strong. But if it's the right type of information too, it's going to be coming in strong too. Versus um, when you read a book, I think there's you know inherently a patience that she'll learn. And a patience with consuming information too because like have you tried watching like a black and white old movie after watching something like you know a marvel movie it's near impossible like the the old movies are beautiful and they have their own pace and you have to like be able to be in a place to receive it but you can't mix um you know you can't mix juice with with wine if that makes sense like if you're drinking juice wine's gonna taste weird <laughs> this feels like there's a bunch of metaphors trying to explain something but so let that be the landscape for me to try and explain that so what i see in in my daughter when she's when she's um learning things um through technology is that it's like it's on steroids and i think it can be dangerous because i heard a priest say this once but like as as the technology develops, more wisdom is required to use it. And I always thought of it like um, 
to take like a blunt example, let's say imagine cavemen, right? And you're like, if you wanted to kill someone, <laughs> it's getting dark. If you're a caveman who wanted to kill someone, if you didn't have a tool, you'd have to use your fist. So you'd be like, I'm really mad at him, but I don't want my fist to get hurt. And it's going to take a while. Um, and then you now have a rock, right? So let's say I use a rock. It's harder to say no because the rock is more instant. So in a rage, I could take the rock and hit him on the head. And then you have an axe. So it's even more instant. So the more the technology progresses, the more I need wisdom so that I don't use it for bad or for, for things that aren't good. If I have a gun, now I've got to be really wise because all I have to do is move my finger. I no longer have to like pound someone to death to possibly kill him. Now I just have to move my finger. So if I'm in a rage and I haven't acquired the wisdom or am practicing the wisdom to be using such a powerful piece of technology, really bad things can happen. So in the same way, I think a VR headset, like tablets and phones are already, we hold them up to our faces, right? We're always looking at them. Now imagine there is no friction uh, between ingesting it into your brain. There's like, you'd, here in, in a tablet, you see the screen, you see that it's something separate. But it's almost like, do we even realize what that would be to feel like um, my perception of this thing is like it's right in front of me. There is no longer the barrier, right? So I, I do think it'll be um, really immersive and the information we take from it will also be more intense. Um, you know, like for example, in the metaverse, if you've got uh, a headset on, it'll feel more real when you see your friend, uh, when you play a game together, you just have to look. I don't have to move the mouse. I just move my head. It'll feel more real. So I think that comes with good and bad, meaning um, it'll feel more like I'm really there. And if I'm with people, that will feel real. But if, you know, um, if I'm learning things from the platform, it'll also mean if they aren't good things, I'll be learning bad things really quickly. I guess that's mm -hmm. the, you know, I mean, uh, a scary thing is, and I know this is kind of controversial now because, um, a lot of people normalize um, pornography, but I think it's, it's, I think it's a, it's a bad thing. I think it dehumanizes and objectifies people, and it gives people the wrong impression of what um, a human being should be used for, about what sex should be. So imagine, um, I think they already create um, content for that using CGI. <laughs> so the CGI is so real that they don't need to hire. Um, models uh, to shoot uh, the pornography, but they can just create the CGI. Now, if that feels so real, and then you got a VR headset on, like you're not even interfacing with, you know, um, something that was once a human being. It's it's it was like completely CG. And then, so the possibilities of what could happen in that scene are as far as it takes you, as far as um, you know, the worst parts of us will want to take it. And now there's no filter. So it feels real to me. And when I come back to real life, um, what will I be expecting to do? Because VR feels so real. Um, why can't it be like that in real life? And, you know, we can say, you know, I'm still going to make the decision to not do that. But um, let's not give ourselves too much credit. Like, <laughs> you know, we're, we're creatures of habit and monkey see, monkey do, you know. So um, it's exciting and I guess it's that. 
that with the advance of technology will just require more wisdom. Well, uh, if I can say one thing, uh, CG pornography is, is not very good yet, so there's no... <laughs> <laughs> well, if it were joking, good, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to tell, right? You wouldn't be able to know it was. So maybe there, there has been some that's so good that you, um, just flew under the radar. <laughs> Not on the websites I've seen. Um, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no, uh, no. But then there is this one interesting. Um, what do you call it? And uh, since you had like this nice uh, metaphor on metaphor on metaphor discussion, I'll, I'll hit you back with one myself. Uh, there's this science fiction book I read recently, and it was on my to read list for the longest time. And through a daily reading habit, I was finally able to put it away. It's called Dune by Frank Herbert. Oh, yeah, Dune. My right, and that movie was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so there is a uh, there is a quote there, uh, and it's like a, a dictate. It's kind of like a commandment where they say one must not make a machine in the shape of a man's mind, right? And the implicit the implicit that's the the story justification for the existence of the Mentats and the Bene Gesserits because they have tried a society where they progressed so far in the realm of technology that they had machines think for them and. Um, the implicit statement or the implicit assertion of such a dictate existing in their society at all uh, means that um, machines took over and there was a bloody conflict and hence they have they had to reimagine their society. So I agree wholeheartedly with uh, you know technology being this wonderful thing, but you know I'm not I'm not on, I'm not on the other end of the spectrum where I'm a complete luddite where I say any technical technological advancement beyond what society has deemed acceptable in the here and now means that we cannot do anything mm -hmm. uh, more uh, because I, I just think that it's a question of paths. And uh, I, think, I think you very succinctly put it that there are some wrong paths to go down and that they would be destructive, right? And so that we now more than ever have to put more mental faculties into deciding what is or is not a good path to progress through or to progress yeah. towards, right? And uh, that, that's, that's a ethical challenge that I think only exists within our generation. Okay. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so we've talked about um, VR headsets and the ways that they kind of progress us towards this uh, dystopia of uh, CG <laughs> pornography. Um, and <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I think there's also, I mean, during this uh, pandemic, I, w I feel like I was all in for like the metaverse. I was like, I'm game. Let's. Let's do it. I'll 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 meet you in the metaverse. You know, if we had headsets, you know, you could. Um, I mean, I didn't think I would like it because I'm not a gamer. But um, in the pandemic, me and my friends did start the game, and I don't think anyone played it before this. But we started playing Fortnite, and it's just such a a light version of a you know of a shooting game and you know like a battle royale type game. And um, I think it's it's just been this occasion. To, to meet up and talk. It always it hasn't always been the perfect version of it, but I think it's in between games and after where we talk that's been great. And I feel like, you know, if we had VR headsets, that type of discussion could even, you know, be furthered more. Um, and I think, like, the way we imagine VR headsets now will probably be even... It's like we always think that, yeah, we're going to have flying cars, but it's actually not... So I feel like right now they look like VR headsets, but there will be other ways for it to feel more natural when we jump in. Um, this is a bit of a digression, but there's this AI, like AI totally boosts things in ways that you thought like, um, 
wouldn't happen like there there's this new AI in development that can use like video from a webcam and then triangulate what it can like motion capture what you're doing right and that's crazy because right now motion capture so vr would be how to take it in but motion capture is basically how you tell the computer what you're doing and right now accurate motion capture needs if you want to do it really right like it needs a bunch of cameras around the room and it needs like um, accelerometers and inertia sensors it's a lot but if you could take a webcam and have that you know understand your movement then like anyone with a webcam could be on the metaverse right with a vr headset so all that to say i am i am excited about the technology i just think there there are like as you said different paths we could take <laughs> um so let, let's take a step back from uh the incredible technology that is uh destined to destroy society and uh <laughs> let's talk about some more visceral visceral things some more natural things you recently started a family man what's that like um relatively recently yeah yeah so lily is three now um kim and i have been married for four years so um yeah i think with i think it just progressively feels like you don't realize how much time you had um like when you're when you first get married you think oh my gosh when i was single i had so much time i didn't have to check with anyone and then and you think like you're so uh you've you've got a lot less time now that you're married and then you have a kid and then you're like oh my gosh we could just stay up and you know watch netflix or order mcdonald's at 3 a.m and then sleep in the next day but now if we do sleep in we've got a a toddler waking up at like 8 a.m saying mama wake up papa wake up like um you know and that's what i think now with one kid and i bet when we have another kid we'll look back at this time like oh my gosh we had so much time i think it's just this progressive realization of how much time you have now um and it's funny because i don't think there's any way to realize it without having gone um to the other side where and you can no longer access that free time you had so um all that to say i think it makes you have to make choices with your time i think when you decide to meet up with someone when you decide to take on a project it gives you just that much more clarity on what you want to take on. I mean, supporting a family has definitely made it like I think when I was single, um and there'd be like a commercial project or any project that's like, yeah, you know, it's kind of a a collab, let's see what happens. Uh there's no there's no pay or you know, this pay is little. It's like, um I need to be making this much monthly now and I'm not the only one who's going to suffer if I don't hit that. So, you know, and and strangely enough you i think for me it's made me um shoot for and get higher paying gigs um that that's happened progressively like when i was single i was making this much and then you know i was scared oh, i wouldn't be able to support um my wife and i with with just that much but when i got married i started making more and then when i had lily we started making more so um the lord provides but also i think the hustle increases um when you have to mm. so uh did your professional goals like 
for yourself, change it all now that you have a child. Like, this, was there an adjusting down or up that occurred when you know you knew you had this incredible responsibility of a child? Yeah, I think um, in college, I always thought of like, for some reason, I think both me and my wife, you know, seeing these famous graphic designers, designers, and be like, oh, you know, you got to be a rock star. I think getting into the industry and realizing you can make it or make money without being world famous was one thing that kind of uh, diffused that. Like, okay, I don't have to be a design rock star. But then also, yeah, having a child, I think it gives you this, I mean, you hear it said so many times, so it sounds hackneyed, but it gives you like a sense of, of purpose and meaning that I think is so palpable if you let it. Because I think people can resist it too. Like, I think there's people who have become new parents and who are kind of like, yeah, that's great. But like, I think if you like sit with it, you know, and just kind of let the, let like the miracle of the fact that this new life, which you've participated in making is before you. Um, and just little things like um, that just kind of melt things away. Like when, when I see Lily smile or when I hear her laugh, like it, it puts things in perspective so I think my professional goals have been more about doing meaningful things and things that um, support the family. So my wife and my child are the first priority. And when I don't do that, things kind of fall apart. Um, maybe they won't fall apart immediately, but um, it's tricky too because like as an artist... I think there's this feeling like, oh, I've got to make something truly valuable for the world. Like, I need to show the world. It's like, um, in some ways, it's like, it's funny that as an artist, like, part of what you do has to be seen, right? It's weird to, like, make a painting and then lock it up. Like, it feels, like, intrinsic to art for it to be shared and observed and experienced. So... Um, so like as an artist, you're like, oh, I've got to do something like that. And then you contrast that with, with a kid, you just have to be there. You just have to be there. And, um, you don't have to necessarily even capture the moment with a photo. You can just be present. And I think family life, um, really like puts you head to head with that. And I don't think it's actually unique to artists to, to be thinking of like work as something like you have to do and then there's an output and you see it. And with love, you kind of just, of course you do things, but I mean, a big part of it is like, it's not input output. Like sometimes, I don't know, like um, you try so hard and then like, oh, it was the wrong thing and your wife is mad or, um, when I'm doing a little project with Lily and we're making, <laughs> we're making clay and it's like, it's just supposed to, we're just supposed to have fun. But I'm like, how do I inculcate this value of beauty to my child? And like, no quality Lily. And it's like, no, stop, stop bending it. And, <laughs> you know, like make it like this, make it this high, choose these colors. It, it's, it's weird. And I sound like a crazy person now, but like, you know, Lily, like use, I, I don't think we need more blue. I think we need, let's just use warm colors so that this whole blotchy finger painting will have some cohesion. 
But really, the most important thing is to be to be present to her and so that she actually enjoys it, you know? Um, because she's not going to want to do art if she doesn't enjoy it. So anyway, maybe that's just a long way of saying um, as a single person, you're so used to um, I invest in the output and it comes out and I work hard. And then with family life, and with relationships, it's so often like you have to listen and you have to wait and you have to just be there. So I think um, you don't have to be married to experience that, you know, even I think in a relationship, if you're taking it well, in a committed relationship, you can start to see, oh, I, I don't just push harder. I don't just try and make my point clearer and that will solve things, <laughs> right? You you have to be there and listen. And so I think uh, family life just does that more intensely because you can't, I think especially when we had a newborn, you feel it so um, intensely. It's like the child won't stop crying. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter how tired you are or how much work you have to do. Um, the child is crying now and um you, you have to deal with it somehow like with a newborn that child is going to do what it's going to do regardless and i think coming to terms with that and everyone who tells you that like everyone who says that like children are these perfect angels and there's no way um you could like be angry at something so perfect hasn't had a child like i think having a child also puts you face to face with your own impatience like i remember i remember it was like 3 a.m lily was a newborn and i was changing her i think i told you the story separately but um i was changing her poopy diaper and i was washing her butt and um as i, <laughs> I hadn't finished washing it yet and she just reaches her hand you know and then touches her butt and then and then i, I think at three a.m. and then I just screamed, no, 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 and I said like, Lily, and then, or or no or something, I shouted and I was like, and then I just like I took a deep breath and I was like, it's not her fault, she doesn't know what she's doing, and I like I had to do the whole thing and then wash her hands. And when I stepped out of the bathroom, Kim was looking at me like, are you okay? <laughs> it's like. People who haven't been through this are going to look at it and go like, oh, wow, you're so horrible. Like, you can't you, like, be innocent for a cat? But once you go through it, you will be tested and you will see how bad of a person you are and how, yeah. So, a bunch of things. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> I guess after that anecdote, this next question is particularly apt. Uh, what is one unexpected positive of having a child uh, that that happened to your career? Like, are are people who contracted you more forgiving, or is there anything that's like jumps out at you as being an advantage to having a newborn or toddler? Um, I think definitely um, there's an unexpected uh, positive in terms of your focus i think because it makes it so that you have to go you have to do something now and you're less precious about it i think before that i was more you know i gotta gotta feel it or whatever but once you have a kid and there's no time 
it's like you just you just you put yourself in the zone you don't wait to get in the zone or if you're not in the zone you do it anyway and um i think um in terms of like people being more understanding yes sort of but then like i don't it doesn't feel professional to use that card but i am very like clear with clients that like you know i've got to take care of my kid i think it's more like for me uh both in terms of focus at work and like how efficiently i need to get something done and also with scheduling like i have to say and that kind of also affects people i work with because like now i do have to like pause for dinner and i do have to pause at a certain time to put Lily to bed. So that means that people who work with me can also stop working, hopefully, um, by nine because after that, I won't be able to reply anyway. So yeah, I guess those efficiencies that are forced on you because of this necessary schedule of someone's feeding time and diapers. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, so Carl, we've gone on about a two-hour journey through your professional life and the things that interest you now. So uh, this is the question I usually cap the podcast with. Um, where do you see yourself in five years, man, on this path you're on? Hmm. In the metaverse. Uh, no. Um, where do I see myself in five years? I'd say I would like to continue working with more international clients. I think when I was um, younger, there was a part of me that really wanted to be living or working abroad. But I think I'd be okay with working with people on a worldwide scale instead of necessarily living in a different country. Um, a more controlled and disciplined work schedule. Um, honestly, I think the clearest thing is more children, like between me and Kim. Um, I mean, I want to have as many kids as we can handle. Um, uh, right now we're like kind of, you know, pegging it at like three or four and see what that's like and see if we can have more. But like, um, I think if we receive it well, it seems like the people who have, you know, intentionally grown a big family are happy about it. So that honestly is somehow the clearest thing. Um, but in terms of career, I think um, I just want to be making like there, there, there's a lot of things that are I find interesting and I'm not sure really how to synergize it just yet. So maybe hopefully some form of that where like I'm really interested in the thinking behind video games, um, character design, um, 3D nfts and and all that and where that's all going um but some sort of synergy of that hopefully that aligns with the things i find most meaningful sounds like a really abstract answer so i don't have an exact game plan for for five years but yeah so a more international um reach like a more world-class kind of output um, more children, and then work that somehow synergizes the things that I do and are interested in um, to do something meaningful.
No, it's it's funny because I, I always joke with my girlfriend that I want to have like as many children as possible also. And I, I keep telling her like, oh, I want like 12. And then she <laughs> she says, okay, you can have those for like, you can have like the first two with me and then like the, the next <laughs> 10 with like wives two, three, and four, okay? <laughs> of course, as a joke, as a joke. Um, <laughs> and you say, yeah, sounds good if that's... Sounds yeah. good right into my plan no i'm kidding anyway <laughs> yeah i used to joke too about 12 i'd be like we should have 12 for like the 12 apostles and then this is a horrible <laughs> joke and then we'll give judas up for adoption oh, that's such a <laughs> saying, but not really um we'll keep him so it's, maybe he'll uh, run it's away like, yeah you're really you're really taking a heart that go Would forth you? and multiply carl <laughs> <laughs> No, would you really do? You think would you if 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 V was game? Would you do? Would you really want twelve kids? Do you mean that seriously, or like a lot? No, I mean it, sorry. I say twelve, but it's really more the how should I say it? Like more I like want, fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean I, I want I want I want kids because I grew up in a in a in a big house that was like empty most of the time, mm. and I, I think I could have done better if. Uh, if I had more people to rub up against and to contain uh, my personality, uh, so mm. and I think I, I want I want to give that to my kids that they rub up against each other's beings and that they you know they they learn to tolerate even at home uh, the presence yeah. of other people and I think that that that's an important thing that I went longer than I should have without as a child. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I I I agree. There was um even like um what is it like i think it was in 12 rules for life in jordan peterson's book where he said like when you have it's like you the responsibility of the people who love you to like tell you what you're doing wrong because they love you <laughs> and uh, they're gonna do it with love you know love um so if you had like siblings they'd be like i remember growing up and like my older sister going like oh that's so corny or like, oh, that's so dumb. And, you know, it just like, I think siblings temper whatever is too loud because they'll just shut you down. And then you, you end up like adjusting before you have to adjust in public where people will maybe do it with less mercy. So I, I like I like your reasoning there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, Carl. Thank you for coming on my podcast. It was wonderful to have you. Thanks for having me, man. I think uh, this was really fun. <laughs>